0: You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread
1: the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned
0: specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation,
2: the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this
3: episode. Bienvenue. Mon nom is Patricia Charre Muganeza. My name is Patricia Charre Muganeza, and I'm from the International Development Research Center, or IDRC. And it's, honor, it's an honor for me to welcome you to this fireside chat on building climate resiliency um, through financial reforms. Just a reminder, please, to maybe put your phone to silent just to make sure there's no interruption during the event. So we have convened this discussion here on the margin of the Canada CARICOM summit to explore a serious issue, the resilience of small island developing states in the face of climate change. Our distinguished speakers will delve into the strategies and approaches that can help small island developing states transition to net zero economies um, and sustainable development while mitigating adverse impacts of climate change. We hope that the discussion will inspire solutions for governments, policymakers and financial sector leaders so that they can implement them. But first, um, I'd like to acknowledge that the the beautiful space we are gathered here today um, is situated on unceded unceded, uh, territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people whose stewardship um, on the land and waters we now call Ottawa date date back time immemorial. Indigenous leaders, Indigenous knowledge, sorry, is strongly linked to the land and ways of life. As organizations supporting and sharing knowledge in Canada and internationally, this acknowledgement means reaffirming the value of local and Indigenous knowledge. Our esteemed speakers, Mr. Timothy N.J. Antoine, Governor of the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, Miss mm-hmm. Jennifer Elliott, advisor at the International Monetary Fund, and both, both board members of the Toronto Centre, and Miss Erin Tansy, Director of the Sustainable Inclusive Economies Program at IDRC, bring with them a wealth of experience and insights to this conversation. Welcome. After the chat, there will be a Q&A. So we're very looking forward to your questions to bring um, your perspectives, your questions to the conversation, and to also make sure we tease out all the expertise that our speakers are bringing to this, to, to this event. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and we will bring a, a mic to you. Also a quick note to say that the event is recorded and the recording will be online shortly. So without further ado, I would like to invite Mr. Babak Abbasadeh, President and CEO of the Toronto Centre, for opening remarks. Mr. Abbasadeh, over to you.
4: Thank you very much, Patricia, for uh, that very nice uh, setup of the event. And uh, we are really pleased to be collaborating with the IDRC for this event. For those of you who may not know much about Toronto Centre, I have prepared a uh, (laughs) 45-minute summary. No, but since our establishment as an NGO in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 23,000 financial supervisors and regulators from 190 countries and territories. Our mission is sponsored by Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish uh, CETA, IMF, and uh, many other uh, uh, valued international partners who work with us on project-specific issues. We believe our mission is complementary to IDRCs. For more than 50 years, IDRC has worked as part of Canada's foreign affairs and development effort to support and fund high-quality research within um, and alongside communities in the global south to drive um, global change. We are honored to be co-hosting this event with them. In 2016, now why are we interested in climate? In 2016, uh, Toronto Centre was the first institution to offer climate risk training to central banks and supervisors because climate change is a substantial risk to global financial stability, equality, and inclusion. We saw that linkage. That was well before the establishment of any global body to deal with this issue in, in a systemic way. Today, there is a global momentum on the urgent need to combat climate change and to transition to a green economy. While finance is a significant barrier, especially for small island developing states who have contributed little to the problem, but are on the front lines of climate change impacts. Financial authorities have a key role to play to oversee their financial institutions' risks through stress testing to better understand the resilience of their financial systems, climate impacts, to build a financial ecosystem that can de-risk blended finance and domestic resources needed to finance a net zero economy, including supervising for greenwashing risks. Without confidence in the system, we as citizens will no longer be able to participate and be part of the solution. To help us make sense of this situation, we have brought tonight two members of our board of directors, uh, who I'm very happy to be working with alongside. Governor uh, Timothy Antoine recently joined our board, but he's intimately familiar with not just Toronto Centre, but the challenges of small developing island states and is joining us straight from the IMF World Bank meetings in Marrakesh. So am I. We survived the Marrakesh experience, so we're here. And um, he hosted Toronto Center's first ever climate capacity building program at the Eastern Caribbean Central Banks in 2019. Jennifer Elliott is a very strong supporter of Toronto Center. Thank you, Jennifer. She is at IMF. For those of you who watch Mission Impossible movies, that's the different IMF. This is actually IMF that goes into countries and does serious work. And is a senior official at the IMF department that assesses countries' financial sector and offers technical assistance to rectify gaps. And Erin, we're very pleased that you're joining us also to provide some commentary on the discussion tonight. I hope you enjoyed the session, and Jennifer, i pass it back to you.
0: Thanks, Babak, and thank you, Patricia, for setting us up so nicely. Um, Governor, welcome to Ottawa. It's a little bit of a climate shift from Morocco, and I'm, I'm glad to see you're here. Thank you. Uh, and welcome to the Toronto Centre. It's a magical little place. It's, it packs a lot of punch, and I'm looking forward to working with you at the Toronto Centre. So, to start us off, let's take a look at the Caribbean, uh, and maybe you can situate us a little bit at what's going on. To use an overused phrase, we live in uncertain times. I mean, really, it's very hard to talk about the economy now and talk about any kind of uncertainty. Unprecedented levels of debt, a lot of geopolitical uncertainty, fragmentation, conflict, etc. Everybody is a bit concerned. I mean, even in the last couple of weeks, we've downgraded growth estimates and so on. And for the Caribbean hit hard by the pandemic, especially in tourism. But even before the pandemic, high debt levels, food insecurity, energy insecurity, and of course, some climate disasters that have come your way. and We'll get to that in a little bit, but maybe to situate us a little bit on how it looks economically for you in the region.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So thank you very much, Jennifer. And let me say good evening to everyone. I bring you warm greetings from the Caribbean. That's why you have sunshine today <laughs> in Ottawa. Um, it's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to serving with uh, you on the board and the rest of the team. Thanks for coming this evening. So where we live in the neighborhood called the Caribbean, the shocks keep coming. And the managing director of the IMF has described it as a poly crisis. Uh, The truth is that it never seems to stop. Um, There was global financial crisis, then there was the, of course, the pandemic, and then now we have inflation, and of course we have the geopolitical tensions that have over, uh, boiled over in the Middle East and elsewhere, war in Ukraine. So it's a Those are real challenges for us. In the Caribbean, notwithstanding all of those things, the economies are recovering after the pandemic. We have, in fact, seen significant growth in all of our economies, and we expect that by the end of this year, certainly next year, almost all the economies will have returned to pre-pandemic levels of growth output, pre-pandemic output. So that's a positive thing. Uh, if you take Guyana out for a sec, Ghana is growing at 40% because of oil. This year, the IMF projects that we'll grow by about 4%, next year by about 3%. So the growth is on. Tourism has been, for many of our countries, the biggest driver, uh, because that is our biggest export for many of our countries. Uh, and since we're in Canada, you may want to know that about 2 million Canadians go to the Caribbean every year. Last year, 2 million Canadians went to the Caribbean. By the way, we could take more of you, so please stop. (laughs) Um, I I know we we have capacity. We've had some challenges with airlift, but we're working through those. On the debt side, and you mentioned debt, the region is highly indebted. That was pre-COVID, it is still the case. And in fact, because of the pandemic, we saw a jump in debt because growth collapsed. We had the largest growth shock on record. I'll give you an example. The region I work for, the ECCU, 16% decline in growth in 2020 the gdp debt to GDP ratio moved from 65 percent to 88 percent in one year as a result of the growth shock but now that the growth has recovered or has returned we're now back to around 70 percent this year and hopefully that will continue to trend down so that is definitely again on the downward trajectory on the question of health and uh, food and nutrition security very briefly Health is a major issue in our region. I don't know if you know this, but almost eight in 10 deaths in our region come from NCDs, non communicable diseases. So here I'm speaking of hypertension, diabetes, obesity, cancer. It's a real, real challenge. Almost eight in 10 deaths. That was before the pandemic, and we saw it exacerbated by the pandemic because people with pre existing conditions did not survive or have had long COVID and many other issues. On food and nutrition security, while the Caribbean will not make any, except for maybe Haiti, any list of the most insecure countries in the world, the fact of the matter is that a survey by the FAO, the Food Agriculture Organization, in 2021, indicated that about 40, 59% of the Caribbean is food insecure. And there's a nuance there that you need to appreciate there's the issue of access to food. And there's an the issue of access to quality or healthy food. And part of the real challenge in our region is that we're eating badly, meaning highly ultra-processed foods, which are contributing to the non-communicable diseases I just referred to. So we have an issue there with respect to food and nutrition security, uh, which we have to resolve. We we import about 80% of what we consume. Uh, and much of that, of course, is, is, is food food from abroad, ultra-processed food. In in the area of energy, and I'll stop with gender in a minute, on energy, about 80 to 90% of our energy is still dependent on fossil fuels, which means we have among the highest electricity rates in the world. If you're doing 30, 35 cents per kilowatt hour for energy, you cannot transform that region, and you cannot be competitive. And that's the challenge that we have. And you see what's happening with oil prices again because of what is going on in the Middle East. Finally, on gender, there has been some progress. More and more women are getting education opportunities and are graduating, positive. More and more women are entering the political arena and entering our parliaments, positive. But we do see still uh, a challenge with respect to their access to employment and access to credit. And those are areas that we have to continue to work on. Uh, Canada's role in terms of this feminist agenda obviously is very important. Uh, we have seen women and girls lifted. But we still also see... One in four women who indicate that uh, they have been abused, gender-based violence, and that abuse or violence between a man and a woman is a private matter. So you see the depth of the problem that we're dealing with. So that's a quick rundown on the Caribbean.
0: That was quite a rundown. Thank so let's, uh, let's turn to the climate then. I mean, against that backdrop, you have a history of climate disasters. So a a, a study we did at the IMF showed that out of 511 small disasters that befell small states, two-thirds were in the Caribbean Mm -hmm. after 1950. So that's 250,000 deaths Mm -hmm. in the Caribbean because of climate catastrophe. You yourself had uh, a couple of very close personal brushes you had when you became governor, Mm -hmm. there was a hurricane that that hit uh, Dominica, Mm -hmm. that same year, um, which was quite catastrophic in your own country in 2004, Grenada and that that the the economy still feels that it has a very long tail as we say right yes. but you have distinguished yourself in 2014 in your approach to debt relief you had a different idea of how can we have to, in the in the tale of a disaster, how can we look at debt relief? And Prime Minister Motley, who many of you will know, and that Barbados is the champion of climate finance, uh, she she attributes the Bridgetown Initiative, which was a major step forward for climate finance and the focus on climate finance, she attributes that to your approach. So we all want to know what was that approach? What did you do?
1: Well, that's kind of Prime Minister Motley, who has been a fearless, tireless, tenacious champion, advocate really for not just climate, but for small states. And frankly, now for the global south. That's how far that platform has gone. So you're referring to what we did in Grenada. So quick backdrop. 2004, we get hit by Hurricane Ivan, 200% of GDP. I am then the Deputy Minister for Finance in Grenada. Permanent Secretary of Finance, for those of you who are familiar with our jargon. And I get a call from Standard & Poor's. Mr. Antoine, very sorry um, to hear what you lost. Uh, How are you? Uh, By the way, we're downgrading Grenada. And I don't know about you, but that struck me as very crass, very harsh. Conceptually, I understood what happened there. We we were not in a position to pay, and therefore they had to downgrade us. But in my heart, I, I felt at the moment of greatest need, that's the message. How could that be? Well, we got downgraded, and we had to figure it out. But 10 years later, and we got hit by another hurricane, and then the global financial crisis, and we had to restructure our debt. And at that moment in time, uh, working with a team called White Oak, we basically decided to bring this innovation called a hurricane clause at the time. What is that? Essentially, it's a debt standstill. That simply says, if we get hit by a certain magnitude with a natural disaster, we put a freeze on our payments or debt servicing for a period one year up to three years and then we resume payments what do we do with the, with the cash that we we put that liquidity towards recovery and if you think about it for many of you certainly in our region during the pandemic our banks gave moratorium that is to say businesses and households were given an opportunity to not pay the debt not pay the principal or just the interest or principal and interest for a period six months one year two years during the period of the pandemic during the period when the hotels were shut, and then they were given a chance to resume payments when the economy reopened. Same principle with government. So that is what we did. First with bilaterals, then the commercials, and then we negotiated something with the Paris Club. Barbados, so I'm coming now to Prime Minister Motley, Barbados, in restructuring his deaths in 2018-2019, took it to a whole other level and put those clause in. His. So today, Barbados has a single largest, is a single largest sovereign issuer of debt with what is called the Climate Debt Resilient Clause. And I will conclude by saying Canada must take a lot of credit for its leadership in getting the G7 and now the IMF and the World Bank to embrace the Climate Resilient Debt Clause and to put it in new instruments. It took us almost 10 years of advocacy pressing stressing constantly engaging but here we are with canada's leadership common cause with the uk and and others we now have an acceptance of the climate debt resilience uh climate resilient debt clause what that does is provide liquidity in the event of a major natural disaster So, so that's an advance for our countries in terms of resilience fiscal resilience because the truth is the shocks keep coming. One quick stat. I'm a numbers guy, so I will throw out numbers tonight, not because I want to bore you with the numbers, but I get emotional about these issues, but I understand that as economists, we have to have an empirical basis. So I use the numbers to make the point. In the Caribbean, and this is an IMF study, and I learned that, the frequency of natural disasters in the Caribbean is six and a half times higher than anywhere, seven times higher than anywhere else in the world. Seven times higher. Than anywhere else in the world and the losses from those disasters are six and a half times higher than the global average are you are you seeing what i'm saying about the vulnerability so these are the lowest emitters of greenhouse gases but the hardest hit that's the challenge that's the vulnerability that we are dealing with so prime minister motley has championed what is now described as a bridgetown initiative to shine a light on these issues and to do a number of things. One, liquidity, to get the IFIs, International Financial institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, the IDB, to provide more liquidity to uh, countries such as ours. Two, debt relief, uh, the CRDC, Climate Resilient Debt Clause. Three, private sector financing to support climate adaptation. Four, more funding from the IFIs. Five, trade. That's in a nutshell what that has morphed into starting with that humble step we made in 2014 with the hurricane clause.
0: It, this is true, right? It, that's <laughs> I'm not gonna uh, suggest my institution is colorless, but it is not, uh, it, it, it is a gray kind of place sometimes and it's taken us a while to come come to climate as a mainstream issue for us. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the case. So. And and Babak's right, the Toronto Centre started this drumbeat a long time before other institutions, but it is generally difficult to get the grey world of central bankers and financial guys to care about longer term things. So, you know, and I've got a couple quotes here. We were talking Aaron and I were talking before Larry Summers of all people, right? The former Treasury Secretary in the US, not known as a fuzzy wuzzy guy, right? has 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 given a report for the the Indian G20 presidency this year and said multi multilateral development banks have to do more. Yes. We have to do more, the bank has to do more. Everybody needs to do more. Our managing director says we need to do more. Everybody's saying this. It is really that evolution over the last 15 years to put it front and center in finance. So having said all of that, we, we can think about what the international community is going a little bit more local, thinking about what can central bankers and financial supervisors be doing. So the Toronto Centre is speaking all the time to central bankers, training central bankers, training financial supervisors, and they have built climate a little bit in. But what, what can they do? What can you guys be doing inside the ECCU and in your region? What kind of reforms can you come? come to the table with
1: so the first recognition is that climate risk is financial risk climate risk is financial risk central banks financial regulators have to pay attention to the climate physical risk like a natural disaster transition risk where you have to move from fossils to renewables black swan events one in hundred year events We have to assess those. So what we have been doing is raising the consciousness, starting with the Toronto Center, as Baba mentioned in 2019, building out action plans. We've now, with that capacity building, um, prepared training in terms of guidance for how our licensees ought to report on the question of climate Um, risk assessments. So risk assessments, very important. What risks are you dealing with? of your assets under management. For example, in the Caribbean, tourism, major, many hotels are on the coast. Therefore, there are real risks to these assets. And frankly, in many of these islands, 90% of the built-up environment is on the coast. What does that mean for your loan book over time? That has to be assessed. That's risk assessment. So we play a role in helping our licensees to prepare with the requisite guidance their own climate risk assessments stress testing, if this happens, what happens to your balance sheet? If this happens, what happens to your capital? That's important. Capital as you know is important to absorb shocks and to remain a going concern. So we're always concerned about capital adequacy for financial institutions. Then the other piece is so what? Having done the risk assessments, what do you do next? And the key part to that answer to that question is climate resilient financing. In other words, financing for not just mitigation but adaptation. That is where we have to get into climate finance. That is what Larry Summers is talking about where the IFIs have to do more. That's where the private sector has to become involved now because having assessed the risk, okay, we know climate change is real. Okay, these are the risks. What are we going to do about them? What are we going to do about them? We need to think the markets now need to work to address this risk and to make provisions to protect the financial institution and to protect our economies. And by the way, this is true not just for small island states, it is also true for advanced economies like Canada because the climate is a global issue and we are all in peril if we don't do something about it. This is the hottest year on record. This will be the hottest year on record and we're at around 1.2 degrees Celsius as we speak. The mantra in, 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 in Paris in 2015 was 1.5 to stay alive. We're now hearing from scientists that we could be hitting 1.5 before 2030, not every year, but in some years. That's how serious the situation is. So Jennifer, we are in fact on the job with the risk assessments, but we recognize that we have to go beyond that and actually finance resilience.
0: Ah, great. So that takes us to actually a question of scale, right? So when we're thinking about financing, so the estimate for developing countries to hit the Paris Agreement implementation is what would be needed is 2 trillion a year, Mm -hmm. 2 trillion a year, and right now they're getting 400 million to make this transition. So that says that we need private money and private money has been slow to come in. Mm -hmm. So what do we do to hit that scale? I mean, people talk, there's a lot of discussion about private finance now, but the money is not coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and private sector investors like their money back. Mm-hmm. So it's usually a different ball game than public money, which, you know, we make agreements to fund things that the private sector won't fund often. Mm-hmm. Given the scale, we can't avoid private finance, maybe. What do we do about private finance?
1: Well, I think it's absolutely clear that we cannot solve this problem with governments alone. The government of Canada, even if it tripled its climate funding and other countries did the same, we still wouldn't solve the problem. The private markets have to play a role and there's significant excess liquidity in the market, including in Canada with your pension funds and some of your institutional funds. What we need is a collaboration between the public and private sector to help de-risk some of these investment opportunities. What do I mean? So a country that wants to do geothermal, for example, needs to have some concessional resources, grants or concessional funding to first of all prove the resource. Do the test drills, the test drills, the, the will, the, the test wells, do the drilling and establish that the resource in fact is, is viable. The enthalpy is strong, the permeability is good, so it could come out of the rock and you can create electricity. Once that is done you can then enter into arrangement with the private sector to build out the geothermal plant. I'm being very granular here because I don't want to be up in the air. I want to make sure you understand the specifics. That is a, the public sector needs to play a role. So an IFI, for example, or Canada, in helping to get get that going. Once you've taken it to that level, the private sector can then come and bring capital to actually build the transmission and the distribution. So you need that partnership. That's a specific example. What is happening now is that the private sector sees it as too risky, and they're not touching it. So you need to have public capital come in, de-risk it, and then the private come, and then you lift, you lift it. And then you enter into agreements with governments of tick arrangements. That's a, one example. Second, we have to leverage the suite of products from the international financial institution, like the World Bank, like the IDB, and others, to bring to help mitigate risk perceived or real by the private sector. So, for example, in some countries, the private sector is concerned about political risk, and quite rightly so. They want to make a return and they have concerns. But that's what you have Amiga for, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency of the World Bank Group, to bring that political risk insurance product to the table to mitigate that risk. And to make it possible for them to go into a, a country, a frontier market, a developing country, a small island state. In the Caribbean, and I turn back to the Caribbean for a moment, many of our mem- countries are members of MiGA, but do not have any guarantees issued by MiGA. That needs to change, Jennifer. That needs to change.
0: But why is it? Tell me. Is why it is it? Because
1: many, many cases, they're deemed to be too small. And also because there is a reticence by the IFIs to go into these countries. So it's not just the private investors, but even the IFIs. They like the big ones. The big ones are easier.
2: It's true. Brazil,
1: that's... Mexico, well, well, let me know. Don't
0: China. talk about Argentina. Right? See,
1: right. Come on, not so, fair. No, I won't, I won't go there. <laughs> so what President Bangor said in Marrakesh last week was important. He said, he's from the private sector, former CEO of MasterCard that he wants to bring, he has brought the private sector to the table. They have started to have those conversations. And if he can bring the full suite of products, the partial credit risk guarantees, the political risk guarantees, to the table with private capital, we could begin to really scale up. That is what is going to be required. So that's a shift on the part of the IFIs, and it also requires a certain commitment from the private sector. So two concrete examples of how I think we can begin to scale up private financing. Uh,
0: yeah, and I mean, it. I don't think that the private finance challenge is, is so easy even for the big ones, right? Mm. But for you, for small states, this is a very complicated. And, and one question I had, which yes. uh, I'm not sure how you'll answer is, what about pooling? Is that, how so tough is that? pooling
1: is definitely an issue. Um, so just as you asked that to see, we've done some initial work in terms of, for example, on renewable energy, to give a very concrete example. On uh, diagnosis, on on on, the, on 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 the barriers to investment. Two things we found: one, there are gaps still in some of our countries with respect to the policy and regulatory um, environment. Okay. So, for example, you want to do renewables, you want to do solar PV, for example. What's your feed-in tariff? If you are an independent power producer, you have to have clarity from your electricity provider, your, t- your utility company, what your feeding tariff is going to be. You know what you pay or what you buy electricity, what are they going to pay you when you sell to them? That clarity is important because when you go to your financial institution, you have to establish what your payback period is going to be and you going to need that if, you have, if you, know, you have clarity on price. So that's one area. There's an area of capacity. But then the third area, I said two, but there three, is the bundling. So to your point, what we've found is that in many of our countries the initial investment offerings are too small individually so they need to be bundled they need to create a portfolio uh some investors want to look at 100 million and up not 50 million not 10 million they want to do 100 they want to do 200 million so one of the things that we will have to do and again you have to have somebody to assist you with structuring these deals is to be able to bundle a number of investments. So that you make it attractive for the for the big investors certainly the institutional funds
0: okay well thank you governor um we're gonna turn to aaron tanzi who is the director of the idrc's uh, sustainable inclusion economies program Um, aaron has a fantastically global point of view here to bring to this so uh, zooming out a little bit from what the governor's talked about and given all your experience looking across the globe at small economies and developing economies all right I'll, I'll, this is going to be a long question but we started <laughs> with the state of the world and the economy and if you're a policymaker you're a governor you're a, a, you're doing economic reform you have a lot on your plate for stakeholders thinking about reform agendas where should they put climate and and how should they think about how climate fits into an overall reform agenda what, what's Given everything that the government is yes. dealing with, uh, what... so
2: much has been said. Thank you so much. Um, so, d- d- for those maybe one or two people that don't know IDRC, we fund research in the global south, and we're part of uh, you know the Canadian government. Been around since 1970, a very good year. Um, and um, I mean, one of the things that I I heard a little bit about, um, but not so much, was the the issue of loss and damage. Mm-hmm specifically for small island development um, developing nations and uh, that's something that I think uh, well our organization has been um, actively involved in trying to uh, look to see from a global south perspective what are you know took so long I think the small island states have been Trying and uh, a, a, you know clamoring for a loss and damage fund since 1991, mm. and finally there was some movement at, at COP27 last year, but even in this whole year, not much has happened. There's still so much confusion. Who's going to host it? Whatever, and um, and so I think when when what we have done is looked. Um, uh, to see what the main barriers are to accessing finance, a lot of them have been discussed already. Not, you know, uh, loans are usually the way that finance is being climate finance is being uh, dished out, but so many of these countries have so much debt that it's impossible for them to to take on more debt and, and actually get loan uh, get get loans, and and if you look at it from a climate climate justice perspective, really. Uh, like as the governor pointed out, they're these small island countries that have absolutely uh, very little to do with the situation that we're in today in terms of um, climate change, and yet they're the ones that get told by Standard and Poor's, "Sorry, you're 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 basically out of luck." So, um, you know, some some of the some of the barriers have have been have been mentioned. Um, as, I, as I said, I mean, the, the, the idea of, of this continuing to be focused on loans, I think, is um, unrealistic. Um, and, and also the, the governance structure of the institutions that provide these loans, I think, needs to uh, change. It's currently seems to be driven by the shareholders and that governance structure, as opposed to by the emergencies that are happening all the time. So they're, they're not agile enough to to really react in in, in a uh, ineffective in way, um, and of course, a lot of these financial institutions are still very much um, investors in uh, fossil fuels. So that's you know a bit of a a bit of a challenge, um, and um, furthermore, still very difficult for the financing to actually get to countries. It always has to go through an intermediary, whether it's through a UN agency or you, you know others. So there's a cut taken off there. So we need to find a way to get rid of the middle man, middle woman, middle person, so that, that, uh, that financing can flow directly to these countries uh, more quickly, more, more readily. Um, so you know, th- those are just some of the, the barriers that I think we've touched on. Uh, we have to keep pushing for, and you know, at the at the loss and damage uh, discussions that are even happening today, I think that you know, uh, as as long as developing countries continue to push to have a voice there, mm-hmm. um, I think that you know, there's there is some uh, you know some hope that 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 things will change. But ultimately, as has been said by so many, and by all the research that we've uh, uh, supported since I think 2012. Um, the current financial model are, are just so prohibitive and, um, and are not getting us to where we wanna go, which is to a place where there's more resilience. So let, when, when there is a climate uh, disaster, less people die and, 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 uh, and, and you know, more things are saved. And we're not even talking about the non-financial loss and damages, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that's a whole other measure of things that uh you know loss of way of life loss of culture loss of you know so many so so many pieces that the economic model just doesn't show but if you're looking at the impact on a human being on a family on a community uh those are those are huge things so um yeah that's what um so those are, those are some of my thoughts. And, you know, central bankers, I think, also have a big role to play. We work with the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, which is based in uh, Malaysia, and they have about 60 uh, central bankers from uh, developing countries. And, you know, we're, we're trying to help them, I think, build their capacity like you, like the Toronto Centre, in some of the things that are written in the Paris Agreement. So among all the other things that central bankers have to get their head around, they have to be able to get their head around aligning their policies to meeting the, the targets uh, on the climate. And yes, you could say food and nutrition. Yes, you could say all of these. Uh, all of these issues are huge. But without with a burning planet, uh, everything else, you know, falls away. So um, so more building of capacity there um, what I think would also go a long way.
0: And what's it going to take for more bankers to central bankers, but other bankers, mm-hmm. right? Real sure. bankers to, to build that into their thinking governor based on your, you're, you're your coming from a region that gets hit by it and that's kind of your point, right? And, um, but everyone else can be a little less educated if they choose. So how do we, how do we cross that, that barrier? Or do you think it's really a barrier? I mean, things have changed, right?
1: I think things are changing. I mean, look at what has happened this summer with the fires, the floods, the droughts. Um, I mean, I think we've come a long way in the last couple of years through lived experiences of persons both in the global south and north around climatic events, on seasonal extreme events, to really bring the focused attention that something has to be done. And then... Just the heat. I mean, the heat is really on. So I think (laughs) reality is is, is hidden home, but we have to build capacity. And that's where the work, for example, of the Toronto Centre is really, really important. And if anything, Toronto Centre has to do more, and others, of course. But Toronto Centre has to do more because more and more regulators, bank and non-bank, have to step forward. I think there was initial, um, and there still is obviously a a preoccupation with inflation. Naturally that's the first order of business for a central bank. typically, inflation targeting.
3: And it has been difficult,
1: and I empathize with you Canadians, but I will say the same thing is true in in the region, we're dealing with high inflation. Not maybe the same housing pressure that you're dealing with, but there are other areas that we're grappling with. But even as they work on bringing inflation, continue to bring inflation down, they have to continue. To, to move forward. And I was very pleased, you know, yesterday in, in a discussion with Bank of Canada to see the work that they're doing with respect to climate. Because I think you have to see more and more of that. There has to be the leadership from the advanced economies, but then obviously build capacity in other countries, not just in the Caribbean, but around the world, to to really bring the regulators up to a point where they are they are fully t- treating with those risks um, concretely. And then and, and then of course looking like I said to bring finance into the table, because if all we do is assess risk, all we've done is to confirm what we know to be true, that we are high risk. But we have to go beyond that, uh, and that is, the, that is a part of COP and others, you know, getting the, the Paris Commitments agreed on, getting the loss and damage fund actually activated to begin to really uh, move the needle in, in that regard. So I think the work is in trade. But a lot
0: more has to be done on the capacity front. So I, I want to just follow up, Erin, on your point on economic models. They don't bring in climate because they don't price things very well that are that haven't happened uh, and damage that hasn't happened. But we're doing more of that. Is that something you think about at the IDRC when you think about research? How do we? How do we? It's almost a communication effort. How do we connect the dots for policymakers so that they can see the the hardcore? You know, how are you going to eat? How are you going to, you know, have transportation? How is your farmland going to survive um, in, in climate disaster? Is that something you think about at the IDRC? Oh, your... yeah,
2: absolutely. And I mean, one of the, you know, IDRC's approach is often to work th- with academic institutions, universities, et cetera, to help them build their own abilities and capacities to, think it through. to, 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 to get that going. And so there are several um, examples, not necessarily in the Caribbean, uh, where we are, you know, putting money into uh, research hubs within universities to build those capacities, even on like statistical data collection yeah. of these things, right? Um, and I mean, I think it's a great place to put it in, a, in in a university institution because it'll stay there forever, as opposed to something that's just hanging on its own. Mm-hmm. And you get, you know, young students and people that are going to grow into decision makers that have this knowledge. I mean, even on loss and damage, for instance, how do you how do you measure the losses? Exactly. How do you me- measure the damage? Who's going to measure them? Yeah. Who, who has that capacity to do that? In a country, uh, you know, so vast. So, so yes, we we think about it. Yeah. Good.
0: And Governor, back to one of Aaron's points on debt. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the conundrums, right? Because. In highly indebted places already, and debt levels globally are just sky high. Consumer debt, sovereign debt, households, and and corporates, all of them. So how do we square that with the need for climate finance? For because really it is infrastructure finance we need, right? How do we square that ability to to fund what we will need for a sustainable future with with debt levels the way they are? Besides the cost, but just in general, like the the
1: well, I think there are a number of areas we have to pursue. Clearly there there are products such as you know debt for nature swaps, for example, which is still fairly boutique arrangements. Uh we we've done we've seen a couple in Belize of late three hundred and sixty four million. We've seen some things out of Barbados, hundred and eighty five million a blue bond seychelles. So I think we have to scale that up, the the debt for nature swaps. I do believe that we clearly have to get bigger ambition from our uh, international partners around bringing finance into the table. And then we go back to the private sector. Because in some of these countries where you're dealing with significant debt, grants will have to be made available. Mm -hmm. That is something people are reticent to discuss. uh, And there are all sorts of explanations or issues around why or why not. But to deal with some of these issues, there's just no additional carrying capacity or fiscal space. So you're going to have to bring additionality to the table. So IDA replenishment, for example, on the World Bank side has to be a bigger IDA. And that's why, again, Banga calls for a bigger and better bank. And he acknowledges that the World Bank, for example, has to do better, faster in terms of their, their processing of projects, but also they will need bigger. They'll need more resources. They have stretched their balance sheet in what is called capital balance sheet optimization, um, but there's a limit to that. And then beyond that there will need to be additional resources brought to the table by the way in canada and i i, I mean I, i'm in canada so i have to make this point i mean <laughs> as generous as you are you're only doing 25 cents for every 100 that's nowhere near the 0.7 percent hello <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> am i speaking to anyone so i'm making the point when i ask talk about ambition there is some scaling up that needs to be done. 25 cents for every $100. That's your contribution in aid right now. That's, that needs to increase. And not just Canada, but I, I mean Canada, so I speak to Canada. So when I, those are the areas where you would expect to see some improvement, specifically around climate to be able to meet that commitment as 0.7% commitment, but also to really meet the moment in terms of what is required.
0: You know, we at the, at the IMF we have the Resilience and Sustainability Trust which is a new attempt to do exactly this yeah. and I was saying to Aaron before we were on, one of the difficulties with that just remains the size mm-hmm. and then the, the, it, it sounds like a lot of money but if you put it up against $2 trillion a year needed to do this transition, it's, it's just not. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a bottom line numbers problem. All right, shall we take some questions? Um, we, we kind of went low energy depressed at the end and not, I don't want that to be the case because all of these people thinking so thoughtfully about this very complicated problem, uh, that's what it's gonna take, right? Um, so questions on how we're doing it, where we're going? Sorry. Jake's got the mic, Anatole.
4: So thank you, Governor, and Aaron. My question is, Toronto uh, Centre works in many different countries. And uh, we try to build awareness uh, on these issues. Uh, But where does that voice go? So how is it that small states like your own, or Sierra Leone, or Malawi, or other uh, places where we go are getting the message out? Because uh, we see the impact. Uh, both uh, economically and infrastructure-wise of the type of uh, climate events that occur. Uh, how, how are they getting their message, or how can they get their message, out to where the impact of your 25 cents on the $100 will be heard?
1: Is that for me? <laughs> uh, well, well, I certainly think um, they have to engage. I mean, the Caribbean is in, in town this week at the invitation of Prime Minister Trudeau the CARICOM-Canada Summit. And I think they have to engage, not just government to government level, but, but, but people to people level. I mean, Canadians may ask, well, why should we care about this? Given all that we do, and should this matter? And I think, I think the answer goes back to something the late Prime Minister Lester Pearson said. People who have should have those who don't because it's a moral and right thing to do. That is still the case today. I know some of us get a little tired and we, we get a little wary and is it working or not working? Well, it is working, not always as fast as we would like, but there are stories around the world of how people have been lifted out of poverty. Um, how, in fact, women are making, you know, great strides and, and getting into the labor market and making, making expressing themselves. So I think that's the first thing. But there's also the issue of not just, see, it's supposed to be for caring, right? Canadians are supposed to be caring and compassionate. So I'm speaking to Canada, but the same would be true for any capital that I go to. I would speak directly to the people because a lot of times it's a political decision around the question of additional resources. So the technical people get it, but then you have to get the politicians to then also make the decision. And sometimes the issue is around whether or not the citizens truly understand how their aid is making a difference around the world. I think people also have to recognize it is in your constructive self-interest so to do. The planet is on fire. We're no longer talking about global warming, it's global boiling. And therefore, if you don't take steps to help address this problem around the world, you're not going to have a planet to live on with all your income and with all your pension funds. We need a livable planet. So I'm saying persistent space. I think capacity building is key and that has to continue. And you get, eventually you get to a critical mass. But I'm also saying you have to operate in different theaters. You can't just operate in the technical sphere. There is a political sphere, and frankly we have to speak to people, and people have to also make their commitments. Because so, so, so this week I hope there will be opportunity to speak to the Canadian citizen, the taxpayers, to help them understand why this is important and why they have to, if anything, have more ambition in terms of helping this cause. That's a job for all of us to do. All of us, including me, and I am prepared to do my part.
2: The only th- other thing I would add is uh, have faith in the, in the young generation, because I think, uh, you know, what I see from their activism and their engagement in these type, in the climate discussions, um, even at the level of, you know, IFI and MDB reform is, is uh, quite amazing in the Global South in particular. They are not willing to stand for the economic um, system that has got us to where we are today. And they are there making their voices heard. They need to be given space, energy, and support, mm-hmm. uh, but it's their planet that we are gambling with yes. and um, and I have faith in them. Um, and also, they are the drivers of small and medium sized enterprises that are as the engine of most economies. Yes. and that's another avenue that um, I think many people work in that space, but to uh allow small and medium-sized enterprises and even micro enterprises have them to uh, get them to understand that by them doing and making choices differently than previous uh you know msmes they can actually make a difference um it's a it's a slow game but uh but i i think that's what gives me hope so the young young people and the and the small and medium sized enterprises mm-hmm. and you could add technology
0: to that couldn't oh, you oh for sure yeah yeah uh, i think uh, the the young and technology give me hope i think that's where you know many of the solutions we have to clean energy are relatively recent really right and they've come a long way and as they become more economical you hope right on a big project basis as well um we have more time for questions, Mala. This is my former colleague and, and an insurance regulator, so she knows all about uh, disaster and CAT,
2: yeah. Well, thank you, thank you very much for this very engaging chat. Uh, um, and truly, I think, Governor, you brought uh, the whole picture of hurricanes, you know, and we, we empathize with the with the issue, such big challenges.
3: I'm just wondering, um, do you put equal weight on the You you did say non-bank
2: once in your in your um, uh, chat do you put equal emphasis on the insurance side as well uh just to make sure that that sector is also robust and uh, and can contribute to absorbing some of these risks
1: yeah so uh, I, I, I,
2: don't I i didn't hear much about insurance that so that's I why i was, I was uh, to I,
1: asking and insurance yeah. is so so crucial in this regard because obviously at the end of the day it's the capacity to transfer risk um, when we did the work with toronto center in 2019 we did invite some non-banks but we went beyond that and used so central bank we don't oversee or regulate, supervise insurers but what we did was to take our learnings to the non-bank regulators and engage them and we continue to do that so the capacity that we're building at the central, central bank is also capacity that we're building with non-bank regulators, certainly in the Eastern Caribbean currency. I can speak for the region that I work for. But I will also admit that more work needs to be done with respect to insurance and, and, and this whole history of climate. I, I, I think I think um, we have a lot of work to do. So if you ask me, a lot more capacity building is required in this area. And as and, and a general rule, the starting point is that The resources allocated to bank supervision are significantly more than those allocated to insurance supervision:
3: very
1: right. So that's a, that's a base and that's a starting point, which also brings some urgency to, to what we need to really be doing really around that. So it's a very important question and again I hope Toronto Center could continue to expand its, its work, its impact in this area.